Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Jill O. was recorded on March 10th, 2022. Okay, I'm Jill. I'm a grateful adult child. And um, let's see. Um, I, both of my parents have died, and my mom died... Um, just almost exactly a year ago, um, which was not that long after I had started ACA. Um, And one of the really big things in working the steps, of course, is to like realize your family tree and to figure out what had been going on and look at the intergenerational trauma in there. Um, So I did have the opportunity initially to ask my mom some questions, um, but then I lost the opportunity. Um, while I was in the process. And really, there were a lot of things I knew about my family that I didn't realize and connect. They just didn't, it didn't mesh. Um, There were isolated facts somehow in my brain that once I started putting them into the family tree made me go, oh my goodness, this is serious. And and then frankly, after my mother died and my, my father died more than 10 years ago, I started talking to both of their uh, friends and I got a, and some family members and I got a lot more information about them from that. So I'm gonna start out and kind of give an overview of, of their backgrounds. And then some of the things I learned, which were, that was, that was big. But um, so basically the, the issues <laughs> coming in on my mom's side of the family tree um, was there was some, uh, very big language and immigration issues um, for the family, uh, a lot of poverty, um, sexual abuse, uh, foster care. My, my mother's mother not only was uh, in an orphanage for quite a while, separated from her brothers. There, there were two girls, two boys. They were in boys only and girls only orphanage um, because both her parents were in tubercular hospital care her grant her mother died so then you got parental death and then uh then her two brothers ran away from home soon and her um she and her sister were taken away from their father and placed into foster care and she had i think at least eight foster care placements between the time she was placed in foster care and when she finally graduated from high school um i'll add to that that there was a depression um, lots of sexism that really came into my mom's life. It was um, interesting. Uh, a lot of other family um, things, uh, alcoholism, uh, perfectionism, and still not clear to me, like the levels of just violence and abuse that happened. But based on the life that my mom um, ended up with, I have a really hard time at this point, not believing that there was quite a bit of abuse somewhere in there. Um, my dad's side of the family had a lot of alcoholism, religious persecution. Um, I'm 
part of the family related to being Catholic and then part of the family marrying into the Catholic family, but not being Catholic. Um, a lot of religious abuse issues that happened in school that he told me about, like things he experienced. Um, his twin sister spent over a year um, twice in a body cast, which had to be just crazy. One of his other sisters was killed in a car accident. Um, there was a lot of perfectionism and judgment in the family. Um, one of his other sisters <laughs> was married um, in, a, in a violently abusive marriage. Um, just horrible, broken bones all the time. And that's one of the ones where I spoke to one of his other sisters later. Um, and, and, and I said, like, how could your family know that she was living through this? And she said, my father just said, you make your bed and you lie in it. Um, so, oh, and then his father died when he was really young. So I, you put all that together and, and, and put that with don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, which was so clear in the family. And, and I, it was really clear to me, like, wow, I, this is nothing new that this is coming to me. Like I'm, there's intergenerational trauma in my family. But then after I was kind of inspired by my mom's death to really start reaching out to people. Um, oh, and I should say my, my parents got divorced when I was quite young. Um, they were divorced by the time I was five. And, um, and the, when they got divorced, my father moved to another state. So um, not surprisingly, like abandonment came up really early there and, um, and shame, you know, I was like the only kid I knew for a long time who had divorced parents and things. And, and why did my dad go? And he was gone for so long at a time. But anyway, you know, there was just like, my parents were divorced. So like, how did they meet? Wasn't the biggest thing, you know, they met in college, whatever kind of story. Um, but I was talking to one of my dad's friends and um, they, they met in college they met when they got drunk at a party together. And five months later, they got married. Um, never occurred to me um, the truth that another relative revealed, which was that they had a shotgun marriage. Um, and my dad's friend didn't know. He said it was very secret. Um, but my dad did drive drunk to his own wedding. That's also a bad sign, um, thing you to learn later. But um, so the reason I would never have guessed it was a shotgun wedding is though I am the oldest child, I was born three years after my parents got married. So I never, this just never crossed my mind. Um, so it turns out that my, my mom had said before she'd had a miscarriage before me and miscarriage after. And in, in ways as a kid that made you feel like, Ooh, a special and really wanted. Um, as an adult now who's had my own children and kind of realizing this and looking through some of my mom's stuff, um, my my mom's miscarriage before me had to have been an, a horrible trauma stillbirth um, because she would have been at least six months pregnant at that point. Um, so that's, you know, there's another awful trauma. Um, the party they met at was like a birthday party for her. And this is part of the family story. Her best friend and his best friend were dating. So of course, you know, they're going to meet at some point. Um, but there had been all some confusion about a lot of these things for me. And, you know, again, it's your parents. Don't worry about too much. But in talking to my dad's friend, um, I realized that my godmother, my mom's best friend, the one whose party it was, wasn't at school at the time. So she wasn't at the party, but they were having a birthday party for her anyway. Um, 
when they met. And um, the reason she wasn't at school was because she had tried to commit suicide. So then you're adding like this another shocking, awful trauma that your best friend had tried to commit suicide. Um, so this, and, and then in talking one of my aunts, I, it became very clear that um, my mom in college was, you know, trying to be a little bit ahead of her time, ahead of her curve. And um, she was being judged a lot. I, I knew for years she had said she always wanted to be a doctor. And, and they told her even in college, like, well, you can be a nurse. Um, that was like a story. And but the college she went to had a medical school in a different place. So she didn't want to do that, blah, blah, blah. All right. And after my parents got divorced, she did go to nursing school. But um, but it became much more clear and talking with these people, talking with one of my mom's sorority sisters and things that um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of judgment and um, that my mom was and had felt very judged in different ways for being a sexual being, which, you know, just is so awful. And it made me remember some of the times she kind of railed against men and power and things. And I thought, oh God, I see so much more um, where this was coming from. Um, I'm, I'm dealing with things from my mom's estate actually right now. And, um, and I was thinking about pictures before I realized I would be here when I was speaking today. And um, a couple pictures came to mind that had been in my baby book for years. My parents holding me in a swimming pool for some reason. I was very small, but looking really happy about that. And a picture of me sitting in a crib, just holding a teddy bear all by myself, like hugging it and looking kind of like I was ah, taking care of myself. And then the one that's super telling to me is the one of me where, you know, I could stand up and walk. Um, cute little dress and everything, a couple pictures from that day. It was clearly a party, but the picture of me holding the beer bottle up like this as a little kid made it really clear that alcohol was just always part of my life. I had no idea that it was not like this, that when you had family gatherings, everyone didn't drink, that you didn't you know, you didn't, not everybody every night was like, what is that you're drinking? What alcohol is that? Oh, okay. It smells bad. Tastes bad. Why do you drink that? You know, um, my siblings and I actually worried a lot when our kids were, when our kids, when our parents, when we were little, when we were kids, that um, our parents smoked and that this was a big danger to them, which it was. My dad died of lung cancer, but, um, you know, the alcohol was a really big danger too. And that wasn't one that they were telling you in school, you know, to worry about or anything, or that it might be strange that your, uh, you know, parents buy beer by the case or things like that. I don't know. Uh, it was just the way it was. I just, it just had the way it was. Um, but being at my mom's, I did find some more pictures, which are pretty adorable. So you're going to get a little tour here. The little baby was born. And then I'm not exactly sure my siblings were born. They're twins, um, younger. But, you know, they're these, they're these cute little preschool type little girl growing up, you know, these smiley pictures. And I, I'm guessing right about here is the time where I remember my parents telling me that they were going to get divorced and explaining what that meant and that I screamed that I hated my father and, you know, ran away 
to the piano and didn't want to talk to either of them. Um, there are a lot of family stories from this time too. Like my mom said, you, you talked late. And I was like, huh. But when you talked, you talked sentences. And I'm like, well, that's weird. And I feel like she'd said it many times and maybe not surprisingly in college, I you know, was interested, took a lot of psych classes and developmental psych and that's not how speech develops. Um, <laughs> but then another, one of the times that story was being discussed, my mom said, well, I didn't know that you're supposed to talk to babies. And I thought, that's really weird. How could you not? But then now I think, well, she sure did not have a normal childhood experience at all at home with her super traumatized mom and her alcoholic father. And um, I know she idolized her older sister. Um, she often mentioned things and, and she had some kids. So I also thought that was funny. Why didn't she tell you you talk to babies? Um, another story about me is actually talking, which was that one of the first words I learned to say was chit. Um, and I was standing by the radiator and stomping my foot because my, my ball had rolled under the radiator like I couldn't reach it. So I had figured out how to curse very young. Um, my mom cursed like a sailor. Uh, that's another thing that I just, I don't know. What do you do? That's just how my mom talked. Um, you know, you, you get to a point like where you... I mean, when you're really little, you just know it's not acceptable somehow. But, you know, then there were years and years where she just cursed and and I cursed. But when I came to ACA and in the process of working this, I realized how that cursing isn't just like sort of out there. It doesn't just like go into some weird wind and release something like it's 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 meanness. It's 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 a unkindness to myself when I'm cursing. Um, and that was something that I didn't consciously set out to do, but I realized I greatly reduced even my like instinct to curse those words sort of coming to me in the process of coming to ACA and starting to work this program. Um, a couple other sort of important early things I think are that um, I remembered, I have this image of my dad, black and blue and all bruised up. Um, that he had fallen asleep driving home and it totaled a car. And in looking through both of my parents' photographs in the last year, there are a lot of pictures of wrecked cars. I was showing them to my partner who said, that's kind of weird. He's really into cars. Of course, he, he likes to look at pictures of cars, but not normally like trashed, crashed cars. That's what my family has a collection of trash, crashed cars. Um, and then I remember when I once, I, I don't know, this cat somehow, preschool memory, cat came into our life and I wanted to keep this cat. And I remember my dad saying, well, if you name the cat Brandy, I bet your dad will let you keep it. Um, and I don't know why I remember that, but boy, those little bits that I do remember, you know, they, they mean a lot and they say a lot now. Um, so, in thinking about this and, and thinking through what had happened to me, you know, I, I, and, and working the steps, I realized like, yes, abandonment and shame were big in my life. Um, and they started, <laughs> wow, thank you. They started for me in my mind with the divorce. 
Um, but I, I think there was so much more because I see now and saw it in their lives when I look back at it, how neither of my parents knew how to deal with their feelings, probably how to really feel their feelings. Um, I look at it now that basically all the training I got in emotional kind of stuff was in first grade when the puppet came to my class and told us about warm fuzzies and cold pricklies. And that's pretty much how I saw the world, which fits a lot of my distorted thinking in general, that was very all or nothing, you know, it's good or bad. It was, it was on or off. Things were fine or, you know, people were angry. Um, I've since realized, um, few other things in my life that are really indicative of trauma and stuff. Um, like I was, I, I didn't even know what this word meant. It came up randomly in a book, but, uh, uh, hair pulling, but I didn't pull my hair. <laughs> so it seems odd, but, but boy, I pulled my eyebrows. I pulled my eyelashes and I pulled the hairs out of my arms and my legs, um, as a kid. And I think I knew that it was kind of a little weird, but I didn't really think much about it, but like, it's a whole condition. There's a name for it and things. Um, Looking at my parents now too, I realized like for years I was kind of in awe of and terrified too of my mom's like social skills. You know, she, she would meet people literally on the bus or in a card store or something and get invited to this thing with them and their party and make me these new friends and be the great hostess. And that's the people pleaser. Like I could totally see how she was a people pleaser. Um, and, you know, for my growing up after my parents divorced, cute little school pictures that were in the collection here, um, that time for me was like, you know, my mom was in nursing school and then, uh, and on the weekends she and her girlfriends went out. Oh, and when she was in nursing school, she was also a bartender. Um, and when my mom and her friends went out, that meant they went out to bars. I didn't know everybody didn't go out to bars all the time. I didn't know everybody didn't go out to bars and leave like the 10 year old in charge of all the kids from like three people. Um, that was me um, babysitting them because that's just how it was. Um, then one day in a bar, I don't know, one night probably, um, she hooked up with, she met this guy who, I recall was like one of her friend's exes. Um, and within months she had married him. And uh, which now I realize, oh, within months you married my dad, within months you married this guy. Um, it got weirder when I was talking to one of my aunts who was telling me that she didn't even know that my stepfather had existed until after my mother was married. I was like, wow. She didn't invite her sister. She didn't invite her parents. Um, what I remember is like each kid, each of her kids got to invite a friend to the wedding. So I had a friend at the wedding, but I don't know. Um, that's wow. Well, that um, guy who I didn't like from the beginning, um, my first memory of him is him saying, let's play the quiet game. And then realizing like, whoa, we were just manipulated into shutting up. Um, that was hell. So for a long time, and when I first came to ACA, this period is what I thought was like my problem and my trauma was this period. But now I realize there's so much more. Um, but my mom had married an, a, another alcoholic who was abusive. And 
for years, what I would have told you was that he was verbally abusive, emotionally abusive. Um, and I remember hearing him yell at her at night. Um, and that I pretty much don't remember anything else. I have a deep, huge black hole there. Um, I have a few memories of really embarrassing moments, like him embarrassing me in front of a friend sort of thing. I actually talked to some of my friends about it and they remember me basically being a zombie then, which sounds about right. Um, and by the end of that time period, I um, wanted to be my dog. I would have serious time laying on the floor, petting my dog, debating whether it would be worth giving up my humanity so that I could just be a dog and escape all of this. Um, somehow we ended up in counseling and um, that was horrific. Um, some, we went as a family. I don't know which order it happened in. Um, but when the counselor tried to schedule the next appointment and I excitedly then in high school looked at the schedule I had for these uh, spring musical things I was going to be doing said, that doesn't matter. Only adults matter here. Your issues have nothing to do with the schedule. So that did not give me good counseling experience or faith in therapists. Um, and then somehow in there, he and I alone had to go to a therapist. I don't know how my parents, well, how my mom and stepfather got me in a car with him because I hated him. I don't know what they said or did that got me in a car with him, but somehow they did. That therapist immediately said, wow, I can't see the two of you in one room. And for years, I was furious at them. And in the last year, I did this angry art to them about it, um, thinking how terrible they were. And in that process, I realized that I, again, I was a kid. And like, I know that I didn't get what I wanted, which was someone standing up to him and saying he's wrong, you know, because I, I was in a room one of those times, both times with the counselor and once with my mother too. And no one said, don't treat her that way. Don't talk to a kid that way, you know? Um, but now I realized, hey, maybe one or both of those counselors gave my mom like a card and said, hey, call me. I'm going to talk to you about how to get out of a domestic, you know, violence or something. Um, so one summer after this, um, we went to go live with, stay with my dad, lived in another state, remember, for like a month. And um, we left. And then um, before we left, I said, I, I had been somewhat suicidal, suicidal ideation, low level, but um, got to the point where I, it, it made me angry to realize I was considering that death would be better than living with this man and that he didn't deserve that. And I needed to do something. I had to do something. So I had decided, well, oh my God, I get to go to my dad's for the summer. I can just stay, you know, I'm being moving to another state and away from all my friends and everyone, but that's, I just have to get away. Um, so when we got there, my siblings and I said, we're not coming back. We're not going back. And for years, I thought like, that was my dad's shining moment. Cause my dad really calmly was like, well, let's just tell your mom, but that's okay. Yeah. You can definitely stay with me. Um, now as an adult, I realized like there were some things going on. Like there had been some planning there. My sister points out all these details about how that summer was different from others that I didn't notice or remember at all. Um, but when we came back, he was gone as was two thirds of the furniture from the house. And, um, and that was it. 
So like his name was never spoken. Never, never. He was just gone. There was no, I'm sorry. There was no going to a therapist then. It was just it. It was over. And so not surprisingly, I took that as a signal, you know, like, okay, it's fine now. And tried to just get on with the rest of high school and try to enjoy it and things like that. Um, through all of this, school was definitely like my safe place. Um, I mean, in ways, I also look back and I'm disappointed in a lot of people and a lot of institutions that didn't see what was going on at all and step in, but, um, but school was safe for me. It was predictable, I was accepted, I got verification that I was a human and I had value, which I wasn't really getting at home. Um, yeah. Uh, I've realized, like, I, <laughs> I, my, my, uh, I had a sibling who's in a domestic violent, domestically violent relationship. I mean, it was years ago and they were open about it and got involved in recovery for that and things. And like, I still did not realize like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Cause mom was in a domestic violence relationship. Like I didn't label it that to myself. I didn't realize that until the last year, which is just an amazing level of denial when I look at it and think about it now. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing some things, but there are a couple of things in the last year, one in about the last week that I realized, which was my mom started wearing makeup. And she always said that it was because this next door neighbor had told her, you know, she had said, oh, I don't wear makeup. And our next, our next door neighbor had said, yeah, we know. And that's why she had started wearing makeup. Now I'm like, that's not why my mom started wearing makeup. The other thing I realized recently was, you know, my right shoulder always hurts more. And my, my sisters told me about one of the times that I completely blacked out, which was what she calls the time he tried to break your arm, where uh, because I had read the newspaper, my um, stepfather grabbed my arm and tried to twist it and break it. Uh, I don't know what he was really trying to do, but um, but I realized like, oh, crap, that's my shoulder that always hurts. Like he really did something. Oh my God, my mom, my mom had shoulder problems for years. And she always said, oh, it's because I had this job where I had to carry, carry this really heavy computer. And I'm like, oh man, that's not what the story was. Like, I mean, that's the story. That wasn't the reality. That wasn't what happened. But again, like, you know, I would have been a teenager by that time, but wow, what do you think? Like, well, I didn't know anybody else who had a shoulder problem, whatever. My mom says it's from carrying a heavy computer. Okay, I buy it. But, um, but yeah, that wasn't it. So I have like these. Here are some school pictures. I think, I think that might still have been elementary school. They're not dated. Um, but this and this, these are definitely in the period that I call hell now. Um, Oh boy. Um, so the other big thing that I was really thinking to talk about um, was that I um, I realized in that hell period that I was sure that anyone who knew me well would figure out that there was something terribly wrong with me. That I had this just darkness and blackness. You know, I was messed up. Um, and now realize like, oh. That also meant that I really hid and kept a lot inside 
um, because I was so afraid of that. Um, oh man. Well, I, um, I realized that, um, well, one of the things that brought me to ACA were those, um, the, the laundry list traits, the 14 traits of an adult child. And when I heard a couple of them, I, I on some other some, some podcast, I was like, oh my goodness, that was just like crazy amazing. And I looked them up and read them all and, and just it was one of those jaw dropping moments, like who on earth made this list? How can they see into my soul this way? Um, so kind of what happened in the meantime was, you know, I, I finished high school and I finished college and I got a career, not surprisingly in the helping field. And, um, and I was always trying to do things right, you know, and to be a good person. Cause somewhere in my pre hell life, I had laid awake in bed wondering, what's the point of life? Why am I on this planet? Which is kind of sad to think that like at six or seven, I, you know, I know because we're at the house, we moved when I was eight. So I was no older than eight laying there thinking, what's the point of life? That I thought, well, the point must be to make the world better for somebody else, right? So what could be more of like a people pleaser external orientation than that from such a young age, right? So, um, so as I got a job and then I got married and had kids, um, I, I kept adding things and adding things to my life and um, distracting and dissociating myself because I, it was just instinct. I had no idea what um, was going on here, but I was really good at it. Um, I could take on a lot. My trick, of course, to taking on all these things was that I would cut off all the things on my list in my life that were for me, you know. So if you you can do all this and do all this extra work and be so good at your job, if you don't ever watch TV or you don't go out with your friends and you, you know, um, and I, I worked myself into my hitting bottom a year and a half ago, basically. Um, realizing like I needed help. I needed to ask, you know, I needed to go to therapy. There was something about this trauma, the hell period that I needed help with. And that basically my life was just a big to-do list. And there was supposed to be some joy and payoff at the end of the to-do list. And there wasn't, there was just always another to-do list. And what was the point? Um, so minutes. All right. Thank you, Laura. So coming to ACA was huge because I learned about don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And I started talking and trusting and feeling um, since I'm here talking and I've already talked for 30 minutes. Um, so I worked all of the steps and got a lot out of it. Um, and then I, I decided I should move on to the laundry list book. That made a lot of sense to me. And I started going to laundry list meetings and um the, you know, I, the group I joined was kind of in the middle, but it doesn't matter which step you start with, right? But this thing kept showing up that I'd never heard of before was the drama triangle. And um, the drama triangle is something that I think has been a really big 
um, game changer for me from ACA. So if you haven't heard, you know, basically an inverted triangle, so point down, and there are three roles on the drama triangle, a persecutor, a rescuer, and a victim. And um, it's, it's based on alcoholic families, so um, this research. So, you know, no surprise, as I, I did a little more research because I was like, what is this? Um, that, oh boy, it was just totally, totally there. Um, I, I realized like, oh my goodness, I'm usually the rescuer. I come in, oh my gosh, I'm not just a rescuer in my family, I'm the rescuer at work. I'm the, you know, I'm the rescuer here. Oh, but yes, I do sometimes switch and become a persecutor. It's true. You know, as I, as I learned more about this, I realized it and I started seeing how it was just happening everywhere. Um, and how with my own children, now teenagers, um, that could happen where I would, I would, I would find myself walking into their rooms and just the first thing out of my mouth was not what I meant to say. I meant to say something about how I love you, but instead I ended up saying something that was critical, you know? And, and I just, I was just like floored by how I could stand at the door and not mean to do that and open the door and still that would happen. Um, and that's been coming back to like the step one, two, three and, and surrendering and accepting like this just is this is what happens to people who grow up in dysfunction and with alcoholism. And this is what's modeled to you. This is what you learn. And it is what I learned. I learned you don't, it's not okay to ask for anything directly. It's not okay to have needs. You have to kind of present in this victim way to get help and, and hope somebody comes to rescue you and, and be, have this relationship with the persecutor. So once I learned about the drama triangle and started seeing it all these places, I was like, okay, this is something that I need to stop in my life. I don't want to participate in this. This is, this is craziness. Um, and so I read this book and the answer is like, be direct and honest, be direct and honest. So especially with my siblings um, and my children, I would channel that. I'm like, okay, I need to be direct and honest. And you won't be terribly surprised to hear that with my mother's death, which was unexpected, um, there've been many complications and problems and disagreements about things. And, um, and I so would see the drama triangle. Um, but when I kind of looked into it more again recently, because I was thinking about it and thinking about talking about it, um, I, I did a little you know, Googling and, and it, there was a really cool thing, it was cool to me anyway, um, that what does the being honest mean? Because I thought I was thinking that the honest just meant like I say like the facts, what it what is the situation? But it was more, if you're a rescuer like me, the honesty was that I had this, um, well, the way I'd seen it phrased before was this unconscious need to keep others dependent on us. And I was like, oh, I'm really having, I want to admit a lot of stuff about myself, but I'm really having trouble seeing that. But then this, the next sentence said, we need to ignore that being honest meant acknowledging that we were being like, I'm being a rescuer to get my needs met, to get my need, my self-esteem, like to feel valued 
that I could totally accept. I was like, yes, okay, that I can be honest about. I was doing this rescuing because I felt like I needed to. That was like my purpose in life. That was how I got value was by helping other people. So yes, okay. So I, I this is how I'm like getting my self-worth. Yeah, this resonates. Um, so the persecutor likes to say to themselves, well, I'm just being honest. Like, this is how it is. Um, and the, the persecutor blames others a lot for problems. And boy, also saw that a lot with um, estate stuff, like a lot of blaming of the court system that still has not approved it. And there's just incompetent people and they just don't want to do their jobs. And I, I thought I was like, wow, I, you know, I think actually because of COVID, a whole lot of people died in the last year and courts are having a hard time and people are working remotely and stuff. I don't, I don't think anyone's out to get us. unjustly treated but that they're part of a system like that they are training people to treat themselves this way and oh sorry it says my internet is unstable i hope you can hear me um and and i was thinking that i thought that sometimes i was a victim you know because i felt victimized but um but turns out when i'm reading it that it's not so much that I was actually playing persecutor more which is what i did see myself doing sometimes that that when i was thinking i was a victim you know, like blaming others for my suffering, but I was being a persecutor because I was like blaming them. <laughs> um, that the victim, their, their honesty means acknowledging that they're really invested in being dependent and needy and that they kind of manipulate others by self-deprecating and kind of claiming ineptness so they can get taken care of. And I've really been seeing that a lot with some of the emails and estate issues and things that are getting said about, well, I this and I, you know, I don't know if you can hear all the sirens and things outside. Um, sorry if you can. Um, but I, I, I was thinking more about it. Like when have I felt like I was a victim and now realize I was a persecutor? Um, that happened a lot for me um, around COVID and work because um, we were. I was returning to work pre-vaccine, um, and that you know I really felt victimized by that. Um, traffic sometimes I feel victimized so kind of a persecutor there um and at home would really ever help me um which I recently solved that problem by coming up with a chart and there are some jobs and people can sign up to be sous chef with me because I just want company um and I was like, hey, and if not, then that dinner is just cereal that night because I actually really like cereal and I almost never eat it. So we can just have cereal for dinner. Um, but um, but I was a rescuer a lot, a rescuer, my career as a rescuer stuff. I think being a parent period can do a lot of rescuing. Um, I'm a union member. And so I had there's a lot of being a rescuer and doing union service. Um, so I had had a lot of that. Um, and I had an incident just this last weekend where I, I was watching on Zoom, my extended family, and I, I couldn't keep up with it. It went so fast, but it had to do with um, cleaning all the stuff out of my mother's apartment. And uh, it started out with me trying to be direct and honest and asking like, so what's going to be left in the apartment when I get there for me to deal with? And 
And then one family member saying, oh, with the situation, oh my gosh, I should just leave now. And another family member saying, no, you don't need to leave. I just, well, I, I can't move all the boxes. Well, I could, I could rent a truck and I could move everything. And then somebody would have to drive me back so I could get my car. And if that makes Jill happy, I'll do that. I was like, wow. A lot just happened in like 15 seconds of people saying that because um, I didn't ask anybody to do anything like that. I just want to know what's going to be in the apartment. Um, but there was this whole like, nope, I can't do it for a moment. There was this honesty. Then there was this like, well, then I'm going to kind of rescue you. Oh, wait, I'm a victim. Oh, you're my persecutor, you know, and, and then this other side deal going on. Um, it just went so fast. Um, which is something that I find in talking and in conversations um, that it goes so fast. It's just crazy. Um, so that drama triangle and, and realizing how it's functioning all around me all the time um, has been huge. The other thing that the laundry list um, work has really made me more aware of is it, it help me understand better as the inner drugstore. And I think I'm going to run out of time. Laura, how much time do I have left? Oh, dang. Um, you just asked for 15 and 15. So I stopped yeah. there. Oh, well, it's probably my, my time is up then. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, um, the inner drugstore stuff, like they just throw in all these terms in the laundry list book where I'm like, hypoxic? What's that? And I'm like pulling out the dictionary, trying to figure this all out. But basically what I realized was, yes, I had run most of my childhood and certainly through my adolescence and early teens, like on hyper, hyper high adrenaline, like fear and anxiety were just off the charts at that period of my life. And so that was normal to me. And so it's been very hard. Um, it, it was just weird, like not being totally having reasons to be fearful and anxious. Um, I realize now how I made up those reasons. And I had even started to see it before, but like health things I would worry about. I, I just like my life was calm and safe and all these things. I make up something to worry about. Like, wow, I'm fortunate enough to be able to stay home the first year my baby is born. But instead, now I'm starting to get all these totally paranoid thoughts about what's going on in my life and my marriage and things like just no reason, just no grounds for it whatsoever. I'm just making up this fear. Um, actually, when my children were born, like I went from this phase of like, oh, you know, I'm going to be this is going to be so exciting to, oh, my God, what if he dies? What if he, you know, what if something goes wrong? Uh, like. It just switched into this fear mode so quickly because those were the chemicals that I, my body was used to, that I was used to. I didn't realize, and, and it's been a big part of my search now in ACAs, you know, I mean, this idea of what is emotional sobriety, I'm still really trying to figure that out. I'm just trying to recognize like peace and serenity in my life. And I know I want it and I feel like I get it sometimes but it's really unfamiliar with me, uh, unfamiliar to me. Um, thank you for letting me share that experience. And, um, and it really does feel good to talk. So thank oh. you for letting me break. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, cause I've been doing a lot of feeling recently and, um, oh. and a lot of talking and trusting. So thank you.